Before I begin my talk this evening, I'd like to say a few words about bowing because you see us all, the three of us here and various of you out there doing, uh, putting hands together and doing bows in various ways. And just so that there is an understanding about it um, that helps all of us to see that it's coming from a place of gratitude, that it's coming from a place of respect. And personally, when I bow, I'm taking refuge in that moment, taking refuge in my own ability to touch into um, the Buddha nature, the Christ nature of my own heart. I'm taking refuge in the capacity of my mind and heart to know the truth. And I'm taking refuge in the possibility of connecting with all those great beings, and some of them are you, uh, who support me in this quest in my life to open to the truth and to realize this Buddha nature, this Christ nature. So it's as simple as that. It's uh, not bowing to some blind belief in anyone or anything, but it's really uh, coming from a place of great gratitude for what has been open to so far, and humility of what hasn't been open to. So that's about the bowing. And tonight I'd like to speak about the ecology of compassion the landscape of compassion. I just want to check if you can hear me back there. How's the... Okay. So this is about the interrelationship of our inner world with our outer world. In a way, this is what the energy of compassion is all about, that right relationship of our inner world to our outer world. From what I hear and see in the various communities that I'm connected with, my family community and the community I live in uh, on Maui and the larger community, which includes all of you here, there's a growing sense of urgency wherever we are at many different levels to do what we can, to offer our gifts, however insignificant we feel or sense them to be, to be of benefit to the world, and of course, to ourselves, to touch the world which is increasing in its complexity and its speed, to touch the world with more simplicity and a slowing down in ourselves so that we can really experience truly what there is to experience about who we are and about life in general. And in doing this, we have the possibility to touch the world with kindness, to touch the world with that kindness that is turned towards suffering, which is compassion. Equally as strong as this deep urge is for all of us to be of help, in the world. There is a strong urge to go inside, to go deep inside, and to understand more deeply what uh, 
this mind and body is all about. And so that when we know that, we can relate to the world in a more genuine way. We want to know that inner landscape. And sometimes it takes a time of getting away from the busyness of our lives and the long, never-ending to-do list to really be in touch with that. To really, as somebody said today, sense their feet on the ground and be in touch with that for the first time or a rare time. So it's just knowing the inner landscape in a balanced way. This is what we are training to do here, knowing the inner landscape of our hearts in a balanced, open-hearted, clear way to experience a clear view of how it really is in our hearts, to clearly see when there is suffering and opening in a balanced way to that, and to know when there is not suffering, when the heart is open, receptive, clear, soft, gentle, and strong with all of that. It takes a sobering honesty to know both of those sides, not to just know the place of suffering, but to accept the place of non-suffering. It takes an unflinching courage to see what the underpinnings of our personality are. You know, it's a constant, ooh, you know, when I open to what's going on truthfully, in my own heart, sometimes when I open to those places of the personality that are hard to see, that are hard to accept. This is um, a quote from Agnes Au. It's an article about Buddhist women. And this um, was from a writing in the Shambhala Sun a couple of years ago. She talks about the exposing and the unlayering of these painful habit patterns and the work that we do in order to open to all of that in a balanced way. So she says, I see this path is actually an invitation to strip naked at one's own pace and in so doing to experience the vividness of an unfiltered life the vividness of an unfiltered life. This is freedom. It's not about sitting in bliss or in comfort all the time or listening to beautiful words and just agreeing with them with this constant hope that may it be so for me, but not really doing the work in order to may it really be so for me. To be able to open one's heart and mind so that one can live in this unfiltered way and have enough compassion to open to the suffering of one's life, the life of others, the life of our society, the suffering in the world, and say, as it is here in this heart, so it is out there too in the world, and vice versa. And to be able to really be clear about that 
Be gentle about how that is. Be courageous and strong about all of that. So it's through this process that we discover the habitual forces of the mind and of the heart. And uh, it's not always good news, you know, when we see that. It really needs a lot of uh, beautiful qualities that we develop along the way in our meditation practice in order to open to all of that. We're able to see what the habitual forces of this mind and heart are that create this inner terrain that we are constantly bombarded with, that we live with all of the time. And to discover what effect that has on the outer terrain of our families, of our communities, of, our, of the world at large. So we begin to be soberingly honest with ourselves and to see what inner habitual forces create an ecology of peace, that ecology of the relationship between the inner and the outer. What forces create an ecology of peace? harmony, happiness, on the individual level and on the social level. Can we really recognize this? And then in recognizing that and accepting that, can we be uh, in a place of nourishing it, inclining the mind and heart towards that over and over again? As we do in the metta practice, we develop loving-kindness, and over and over again we set the intention with those phrases of turning the mind there over and over again. What the Buddha said is, what a person reflects upon over and over again, to that her or his mind will incline. What a person reflects upon over and over again To that, his or her mind will incline. So this is with regards to the metta practice as we set, we offer those, uh, that goodwill over and over again, the goodwill offered in those phrases. When we offer that over and over again, we begin to see that that's nourishing to our hearts. And in other areas of our lives, when we when we say good things, when we do good deeds, when we uh, encourage the mind to reflect on goodwill, not ill will, over and over again, we see that that becomes the inner uh, terrain of the mind. It can become the default setting of our hearts and our minds. On the other hand, um, do we see what inner habitual forces create unrest, distress, disharmony, fear on an individual level and on a social level, on an interactive level. Can we be truly honest about this and uh, admit our own faults instead of fault-finding in others? And can we be so clear about this so we don't nourish those places, so that when those places come up, 
hopefully we catch them at first in our thinking, in our in the ways that the habitual terrain of emotion starts playing out, and be able to relinquish it at that point, to let go in a way that is easy, so that we don't nourish that, so that before it comes out of our mouths, or before we take action, um, we notice it in the thought pattern, in the mind, And it can be relinquished then. That's a moment of freedom when it can be relinquished at that point. It's also a moment of freedom when we see a natural place of harmony and peace coming up in our minds. So a lot of our practice is recognizing suffering and what leads to suffering and recognizing suffering and what leads to the end of suffering to nourish one, to relinquish the other. So the Buddha's teaching is all about to nurture what creates harmony and to relinquish what creates disharmony. And this is the basis for freedom. Once we understand this and we're able to retrain the mind, see it for what it is, Notice what's happening, recognize, acknowledge, accept in that way what's happening in our own hearts and minds, and then be able to uh, relinquish it if, if that's what needs to happen. So without doing this quiet inner investigation of clearly seeing the inner landscape, we can never hope to have a truthful effect on the world if we aren't truthful with ourselves. Granted, when we do this practice and we look into our own minds and hearts, it isn't like changing the whole world. When we can, uh, as Manindra says, doing this practice is about deconditioning and reconditioning, reconditioning what is wholesome, deconditioning what is unwholesome. Doing just that isn't necessarily going to change the whole world, but in fact, transforming our own hearts can be a real possibility. And it has a silent but powerful rippling effect on those around us and the whole world. And if everyone took care of just oneself, if we could just take that much responsibility and we were a model for doing that for other people, just a few people around us, and then that took uh, place in the world and, and more people were able to do that, it would affect a lot of people. This practice we are doing requires a tremendous amount of compassion It's not easy to open to what's going on in our hearts and in our minds. In a way, it's so much easier to turn on the news. How many of you today would have rather turned on the television and watched the atrocities of what's going on in the world rather than watching our own minds? It seems to me that it's much easier to do that sometimes. His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, 
Compassion doesn't make the atrocities of the world disappear or see them as right, but it stops those atrocities from continuing in our own hearts, in our own minds. And that in itself is huge. It's huge. It's a lot bigger than we can imagine it to be. Usually, compassion is thought of in terms of helping others or saving others, facing the suffering out there, and then doing what we can about it, offering some help to uh, make it easier, make it better for others. This is absolutely true. And as human beings, it is our nature to do that. It is our nature to help others. And when we are quiet and clear, and even when we're not quiet and clear, we can see that when we're faced with situations where we have to help people in need, and maybe it's people we don't like, usually we help. Usually we, um, we act from a place of goodness in our hearts, from a place of compassion. But we all together sometimes miss a very important step, and that is the tender-hearted care and willingness to face what is happening in our own hearts, to see the suffering there, and to see if we can do something about that place of suffering. To develop the balance and the courage to open to the truth, no matter how difficult it is in our own hearts. This is what we're doing here together when we do this kind of retreat. The Buddha said again, there is one thing, O monks, the not seeing of, the not seeing of, which keeps us bound on this cycle, and that is the noble truth of suffering when we don't see that. And mostly, when we come to an intensive retreat like this, where we become more and more aware of how we don't see it in our own hearts. This not seeing is denial. Denial of what's going on. Suffering um, is easy to see in the world, but denial of it in our own hearts at different levels is what gets exposed. We deny it by sometimes overlaying a veneer of blame or righteous indignation about something that's going on out there. Or maybe we put all of our energy into idealism, into maybe it should be this way. I shouldn't be suffering. There shouldn't be suffering out there. Instead of using our energy to open to it. One of the descriptions frequently given for compassion, which the Pali word for compassion is karuna. The description is, it makes the hearts of the good quiver when the hearts of the good are open to suffering, affected by suffering, or see others affected by suffering. And it says, too, that the chief characteristic is the wish or the inclination for the removal of suffering. And so it's like when we feel our hearts quiver. I have felt this 
in my own experience, when seeing suffering there, out there, or in my own heart, there's this movement of the heart, the quivering of the heart, to really want to do something wise about what's going on. Not just to react with blame or self-righteous indignation or some form of idealism about what should be going on, but to actually do something in a calm, spacious way, in a way that has a lot of clarity and that could have some true effect on the world and within ourselves. All teachings of great beings, including the Buddha, are carried out through the energy of compassion, through this readiness to act, through this chief characteristic of the inclination for the removal of suffering. So it's said that during the time when the Buddha was enlightened, he thought at first not to do anything about, um, not to take any action uh, with it, and just to live life quietly and um, to understand what was going on. But someone came to him from a heavenly realm, it is said, and appealed to the Buddha to look upon the world and to perhaps see that there were people in the world that would be able to understand the possibility of opening to the truth of suffering, the possibility of seeing the cause of suffering, the possibility of seeing the end of suffering, and the possibility of seeing the way to the end of suffering. And so the Buddha, with his divine eye, it is said, looked upon the world and said to himself and thought to himself that there are many beings indeed who have little dust in their eyes, who are able to understand this, to see this, and able to come to the end of suffering. And with great compassion and um, maha karuna, great karuna, the Buddha began to give the teachings of the Dharma. And these teachings have lasted over 2,500 years. And so you might say that all of us are riding on this great wave of compassion. Compassion, His Holiness says, is based on the clear acceptance of the fact or recognition that others, like oneself, want happiness and have the right to overcome suffering. And so it's important to look upon um, compassion in that way. Sometimes it's, we see it uh, face suffering in ourselves, and that's really important. But when we see that just like ourselves, when we can face it in ourselves first, just like ourselves, we see the suffering more closely in others. We have the, compa- we have the capability of opening our hearts much more 
in a much greater way. When we are sensitive, His Holiness says, to that, one develops some kind of concern for the welfare of others, irrespective of their attitude towards oneself. That is true compassion. And we're able to have such a strong sense of that that it becomes less personal. And this is one thing that over and over again I see in the hardships of my own life. When someone is scolding me, for example, or being very difficult, a difficult person in my life, um, treating me in a way that sometimes I might get hurt or feel um, diminished, that when I take it so personally, when I'm not, um, I'm taking myself so seriously, my own suffering so seriously, of course I'm opening to it, but I'm a little bit lost in it, and I don't see that other person's suffering, then I'm not connecting my own suffering with the suffering of another. Um, Recently, when I was involved in in kind of um, a discussion that became an argument with someone, this person was um, taking kind of an opposite viewpoint, and it got to a point where I felt like um, there was some kind of indirect attacks on, on myself or how I was seeing a certain situation. And at first I felt really defensive, and then I thought to open to how it was hurting my own heart. And so I took a moment within the conversation to do that and felt that it really, really hurt. And then from that place, you know, I I kind of um, got lost in that a little bit. And then I came out of that being lost. And then I realized for a moment that the suffering that I was feeling in my own heart was probably very similar to the suffering this other person was feeling. And I was able to let go a little more. I was able to make the suffering not so personal, but to see how impersonal it all was. So from that personal suffering that I got lost in, it became more impersonal, more universal. And that connection of this suffering, the suffering here, the suffering there, and making that, putting that into a bigger place, making my heart big enough to open to all of that, really helped me to to get through that time. It was actually a very um, educational time for me to be able to see that for myself. Sometimes you need a lot of, um, you need a lot of compassion for yourself to see the danger that oneself or another could get into. Sometimes you need to set boundaries when we see um, suffering going on with oneself or another. I told a story today, and this was in my compassion talk also, about how 
one of our teachers, when approached by someone who was being very judgmental of Manindraji, this is one of our teachers, and being blaming and accusatory, and um, it got it got quite to, it got to be quite disrespectful. In my view, Manindraji told me this story. Manindraji's response to him wasn't to get angry or wasn't to get defensive of himself about it, but he simply told this person to be careful of what he said and in fact came to a point where he had to tell this person to stop, to stop this way of talking in the tone of voice and um, using words that may not be true. And so, in a way, you know, setting a boundary. And also to let him know the danger. He said to this person that this way that you are speaking is not good for your karmic stream. You are planting seeds in your karmic stream that will bear fruit. And that fruit will be not pleasant. It will be unpleasant for you. And of course, you know, he said that. He told me he said that in a strong way, but uh, not in an angry way. And this too had a lot of compassion with it because he really cared about, I could see really cared about this other person. Of course, it was for himself too. He really cared about not hearing anymore so he would not have to harbor resentment or a way that his own heart would have to um, deal, continue to deal with that. So these are just a few ways that, a couple of ways that uh, compassion for oneself, compassion for others can bear fruit and in ways that are wise when our hearts are, have this bigness and this calmness and this inner quiet and this honesty it's said that there are two wings of the Dharma. And one wing is compassion, and the other wing is wisdom. And without these two wings, the, the great bird of the Dharma could not really fly, could not really take flight, could not really fly to freedom. Compassion supports the growth of wisdom because it really supports opening to what is difficult. To open to wisdom, it's essential to open to what's difficult. We cannot say that we want to open to the truth and just open to what's (coughs) agreeable to us, to what's pleasant to hear or experience, because that would be only opening to part of ourselves, part of our lives, part of the world. To open to wisdom, we must be able to open to it all and to be able to uh, bear it with great love. And when we're able to open to it with great love, with that great love, with that clarity of that stillness of mind, we're able to see how to respond with wisdom. The wisdom can come in there from a heart of compassion and love. 
It's said then that from this wisdom that's developed, the natural outgrowth of that wisdom is compassion. So compassion leads to wisdom. Wisdom leads to compassion. Deeper compassion leads to deeper wisdom, and on and on and on. Our hearts quiver because we can open to the rawness of life, to the vulnerability that we all face. The vulnerability expressed in the noble truth, the first noble truth, the truth of the fact of suffering. This is how it is in the world. It's simple and straightforward. We see it how it is, how it is in our lives, in our own personal lives, in our hearts. We see how it is with those close to us. This is the truth. This is how it is. It's compassion that supports recognizing the universality of this truth of suffering, rather than using our energy to close down to it, deny it, staunchly be attached to some idealism about how it should be in the world, striking out at how it is, how the suffering in the world, resisting it is a way of striking out. It's a subtle way of striking out when we resist it. The Buddha said that it stands to reason that these ways of relating to events, situations, and people only prolong the pain that we feel in this life. Resistance, attachment, denial, it only adds another layer of pain that we again have to open to. So, to go more deeply to view what's happening, as I mentioned before, as this is how it is. This is a universal truth of pain we all must open to. Sometimes, um, and more, I guess in the more recent years, as I've been um, more willing to go into deeper layers of the mind and the heart, and it, it actually, the willingness had to be forced on me because they were just coming up. They were being exposed, deeper layers of um, truth. And uh, just being able to go through my life now and see more and more sickness, more and more old age, and more and more death, I guess it stands to reason because I'm of a certain age that is able to, has seen more of that in my world, in my world and life. And um, when I come across it, it's just seeing, ah, this is how it is in the world. Ah, this is sickness. This is old age. This is death. And seeing my heart not resist it so much anymore, not closed down because it's unbearable, but to be able to bear it, 
and seeing the great um, Mahakaruna that glimpses of that that is needed on this path sometimes, this great compassion. We're all in this vulnerable state. All of us are. And to just open to that vulnerability is a tremendous relief. It's a relief compared to recognizing and realizing how much resistance there had been. And it doesn't happen all the time. I still feel the resistance, but I still feel, I still feel the relief at times also. My pain becomes the pain. Not so caught in it personally, able to respond from more clarity and able to look back and say, that was a good response, that was a wise response. I feel fortunate to live in these times when there are such great examples of compassion in our, in our lives. Aung San Suu Kyi of Myanmar or Burma, Martin Luther King, Mother Teresa, uh, His Holiness the Dalai Lama, my own mother, you know, who passed away a couple of years ago, but people who are really close to us were able to see this. Moments when we don't have to be caught in uh, our own little minds and open to something bigger than that. As His Holiness says, it's a sense of caring and concern for others, not only our own family, this small circle and friends, but all other people too, including our enemies. That's a hard barrier, a hard boundary to dissolve. But in moments, we might be able to see that with compassion when we see that this suffering inside this heart is not very different from that suffering that the difficult people in our life are experiencing as well. His Holiness says, if we analyze our feelings, one thing becomes clear. If we think only of ourselves and we forget about others, then our minds are very small, very small. Inside that mind, problems appear very, very big. But the moment you develop a sense of concern for others and realize that they, like ourselves, want happiness, and they also suffer, then the mind becomes really, really big. When we think of only of oneself, one's own happiness, the result is less happiness. The result is more anxiety and more fear. But when you include others and you include their happiness, their right to have happiness, and the truth that they also suffer, then we ourselves grow. This is a story of someone who seemed to clear the high bar of compassion for me, uh, not just for himself or others, but 
I saw in this story that this kind of twist of fate um, brought less anxiety to himself because of what happened and so much happiness for another. So this is a story of unconditional compassion and it has a little twist to it. There's a famous Argentine golfer, his name is Robert de Vicenzo, and he once won a a tournament after uh, receiving his winnings, the big check, and smiling for the cameras, he went to the clubhouse and prepared to leave. And he walked later alone to his car and was approached by a young woman. And the young woman held a baby in her arms. And she congratulated him on his victory and told him that her child was seriously ill and had just a few moments, few days to live, not very long. And the golfer was touched by her story and took out a pen and endorsed the check of his winnings over to this woman. And he said to her, make some good days for the baby. And uh, he pressed the check into his hand, into her hand. The next week he was having lunch at a country club And one of the officials came to his table and said, I heard that you were approached by a young woman. She brought to you a a baby and said that this baby was about to die, her baby. Well, she was a phony, this the official said to him. She's not married. She has no sick baby. She fleeced you, my friend. And Divicenzo said, you mean she has no sick baby? And the official said, that's right. And DiVincenzo replied, that's the best news I've heard in my life. <laughs> so that, that kind of compassion, you know, in the moment he had compassion for the, the baby, the young woman, and so much compassion. To hear that the baby wasn't sick brought him so much happiness. Of course, he probably had a lot more money in his bank account. (laughs) He didn't have to worry about that, and that's good too. It's said that the near enemy of compassion is an unhealthy kind of grief. There is a good kind of grief, you know, that we go through when somebody passes away that is close to us, and or there's a loss in our lives. It doesn't even have to be a death. And that's a healthy kind of process, a grieving process. But there's an unhealthy kind of grief that uh, has pity with it. When we can pity ourselves, pity another, we might go into despair about it. And this is when we're lost in the suffering, when we're so lost in our suffering or the suffering of another, that we really can't have compassion. It's called the near enemy of compassion because it can seem like compassion. It can seem near to compassion, but we're actually lost in the suffering rather than having our hearts standing in, uh, in a balanced way and facing what's going on with clarity, open-heartedness, courage, 
the readiness to respond in a way that's appropriate. But this being lost in suffering is not helpful to us. It's not helpful to others. It's helpful to understand when our hearts are there. This is sometimes also called the indirect enemy of compassion. There's a far enemy and a near enemy. The near enemies sometimes called the indirect enemy. This unhealthy grief where we can get so bogged down in the pain of our life, in the pain of other people's lives or the condition of life, that it becomes our identity. And we walk around with this identity of who we think we are, when actually it's just a, it's a passing experience in our lives. Of course, it may be a passing, very, very important experience in our lives. But when we get so bogged down in it, it becomes kind of like what our life revolves around. We lead into life with our wounds, and it becomes our habit pattern. Everything is based around that. As William Stafford says, these wounds turn into pearls. I'll quote William Stafford now. They turn into pearls. They take on a luster. They accumulate as decorations, as badges. And sometimes we say in our, um, you know, psychological uh, environment of today, we take on this victim status. We become identified with being a person that's suffering. It becomes a trophy for us. We uh, develop a solid sense of self around it. So this is really layer after layer after layer of pain. And this near enemy of compassion, it can become life-threatening. It can take away our energy of life. So we must really be careful about this and not to make it a monolith that we live our lives with or something that's hung around our neck that is weighing us down. I remember um, all too well a time when probably for maybe the hundredth time, maybe I'm exaggerating a bit, I was telling to one of our teachers, Manindraji, about my past life and how it was. I mean, the past life in this life, when I, (laughs) you know, it's all past life. When I was um, a single parent in, in the Philippines where I lived and I had to leave the Philippines in a, in a difficult marriage and a difficult situation there when it was martial law and uh, under in a lot of threat to my life and to my family's, my children's life as well. And um, I said it, told him the story so many times that again he said to me in the most compassionate way, Um, we were riding in the car, and he said in a louder voice than usual and (laughs) in a voice that really um, made me pay a lot of attention, he said, stop this. You're only making yourself suffer again and again and again. 
now I'm, I'm just uh, paraphrasing him. By living this life over and over again, by telling this story to me over and over again, it's like not just the first arrow was painful when, it, when you experienced that, but you're not only experiencing the second arrow, but the third and the fourth and the fifth and the sixth, and it probably you know, was painful to him to hear it over and over again, too. And I really appreciated that kind of compassion that he had, that ability to say, stop. Now you've, haven't you grieved enough in a way? So this kind of pity for oneself, which is what I realized was happening, and then able, after realizing that, able to look at face in myself, this self-pity, and why I told the story over and over again. Can't help anybody then when we're going through that kind of experience. And I had children to raise and a lot of energy draining, getting lost in that quicksand of self-pity. In fact, there's a beautiful story that is told in Asian circles about someone sinking in quicksand. And um, if we ever feel pity for anyone else, we know how this can feel, can be. When someone's sinking in quicksand and out of pity for that person or overwhelming grief or not really thinking straight, knowing what to do, we jump into the quicksand ourselves trying to save them. But we can't do it from that place. We really have to save people sinking in quicksand. We really have to help them from solid ground. We have to help them from a place of a lot of strength, a lot of clarity, a lot of seeing clearly the danger that they're in, but not jumping into that suffering place with them, being able to help them from a place of a lot of groundedness. So. <clears throat> I've told this story before, only a few of you who are here who have heard this, so I think I can tell it again. Um, when my daughter, my eldest daughter, had a scare of, uh, she didn't only have a scare, but she did have a cancer situation, and she had to go through surgery for that. So when they went in for surgery, they discovered that they had to um, take more out than they realized. They had to take more of her abdomen out, her intestines. And so um, they did that. And she was in a lot of pain afterwards. And she didn't have enough uh, of the right timing and enough pain reliever. And I was in the hospital with her <clears throat> and just about sinking. I was standing at the wall next to her bed, and she was telling me how much pain she was undergoing. And a lot went through my head, you know, like, why aren't the nurses paying attention? We've rang so many times, and um, why does this happen to my daughter? Why, you know, why me? Why my daughter? And there's so much pain, I don't know if I can handle it, you know. And I never saw that much pain in any of my children before. 
And so I was against the wall, and she probably could see me, you know, starting to sink down, like, I'm do- I don't know if I can take this. And so she said, Mom, Mom, don't go there. I need you. <laughs> like, stand back up. Stand on your own two feet. You can't sink in this with me. And you've got to make clear decisions. That's basically what she was saying when she said, Mom, don't go there. So at least she had some clarity at that moment. And it's sort of like I had to pull myself back up and say, that's right. I have to be able to open to all of this and say, this is the truth of what's happening. I can't deny this. I can't go into resistance. I can't go into blame. I can't jump into the quicksand of this with her. And I, I really need to stand on solid ground and take action in a clear way. And so that, that's compassion, opening to that suffering, to that pain of life, and doing what we need to do. On the other hand, the far enemy of compassion is called cruelty. And cruelty is pushing away with resistance. Uh, resistance of, I don't like this. That's kind of a subtle way. That has a lot of delusion to it also. It could be striking out at what is painful. You know, when we don't like what we see, we blame it or we um, say that it's, it's so wrong that we can't see what's right to do about it. We strike out with body, uh, with our speech, with our minds in various ways. This is easier to see. That's why it's called the far enemy. The far enemy of compassion is cruelty when we strike out in some way. So how are we doing this in our lives? We do it with judging, with criticizing, even in a subtle way with resentment. Actress Susan St. James lost her 14-year-old son in a plane crash. After a year, or maybe years of anguish and rage, she had that open-hearted compassion and forgiveness for everyone and everything, it is said, I've read, that might be responsible for the accident. Her hard-earned observation was this. Resentment, which is one of the ways that Uh, the opposite of compassion or striking out. Resentment is like taking poison and waiting for the other person to die. This is kind of like an inner striking out. You know, maybe it's not shown out there, or maybe it is in subtle ways, but it's a kind of cruelty to, to ourselves, this resentment. So this is inner terrain to watch out for. Compassion, you can say, is the middle ground, is the middle path. It's the path where when we stand on this mountaintop of compassion, we can see all sides. We can see what causes suffering, and we can not nourish that. We can relinquish that. We can see um, what causes harmony, and we can... We can develop that. We can nourish that. 
We can also see the terrain of the near and far enemy when, when there's more clarity there in our hearts, more true compassion. We can see, oh, it's getting into this pace, place of cruelty, cruelty towards ourselves, cruelty towards others. It's getting to this place of non-acceptance, not accepting how things are. It's, that doesn't mean we agree with how things are or that it's right. It just is we're kind of in denial or we're blaming or we're closing down, that kind of non-acceptance. Or we see the, the place of pity where we're drowning in it or overwhelming grief. So we see all sides from a place of this standing on the mountaintop of compassion and being able to see the whole terrain and how that inner uh, life would affect the outer life. So we begin to see the ecology of the inner, the relationship of the inner to the outer. And then we're more honest and we're more effective in the world. And it leads to the end of suffering in ourselves and in others. So I'd like to end with this um, poem, often read, but it's, um, it's worthy to be often read. And this poem is by Naomi Shihab Nye, And the title is Kindness, the kind of kindness that faces pain and suffering. Before you know what kindness really is, you must lose things. You must feel the future dissolve in a moment, like salt in a weakened broth. What you held in your hand, what you carefully counted and saved, All this must go so you know how desolate the landscape can be. How you ride and ride, thinking the bus will never stop. The passengers eating corn and chicken will stare out the window forever. Before you learn the tender gravity of kindness, you must travel where the Indian in a white poncho lies dead by the side of the road. You must see how this could be you. How he too was someone who journeyed through the night with plans and the simple breath that kept him alive. Before you know kindness as the deepest thing inside, you must know sorrow as the other deepest thing. You must wake up with sorrow. You must speak to it till your voice catches the thread of all sorrows, and you must see the size of the cloth. Then it is only kindness that makes sense, only kindness that ties your shoes and sends you out into the day to mail letters and purchase bread, only kindness that raises its head from the crowd of the world to say, it is I you have been looking for and then goes with you everywhere like a shadow or a friend. So let's sit for a moment and let those words pass away and dissolve.
we'd like like to invite you to the next sitting, um, which will uh, be at nine o'clock, and uh, Steve will be uh, offering the metta chant, which you can participate in, and it's really a wonderful way to just have a a little develop a little more energy to sit the one last sitting of the evening, and I think. Steve will be true to form and not uh, make this sitting so long. So he doesn't usually, right? <laughs> doesn't usually go to the very 45-minute end. Um, so I hope that encourages you to come. <laughs> make use of this precious time here. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.